Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia. And I'm Zach James. I'm also occupying stolen Lenape lands. And I'm Azaria Keys. I am also occupying Lenape land. We're really grateful to be joining you today for this Q&A of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Yes, and today's episode is a continuation and a deeper exploration of last week's episode, Communicating and Emoting, Speaking and Listening in the Workplace. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, make sure to listen since this Q&A episode will build on last week's information. I learned so much from the guests who shared about communicating and emoting at work, and I'm really grateful, Azaria, that you suggested this topic because I think it intersects with so many elements of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, and culture, and it really, you know, how we speak to each other, how we listen, and how we share our feelings. I think all of that has such tangible impacts in our professional lives. Absolutely. I mean, everything comes down to communication. Right. And that, that's in all its many forms. I mean, from text to email to phone to in person and then sharing feelings and how we speak about our feelings can be so different based on the context and the community. This subject has so many far reaching implications. Azaria, can you talk a bit about why it's so important to include this subject among our episodes this season? Yeah, absolutely. This was one that I was personally really passionate about. I think as We move forward in time trying to be more inclusive in workspaces, being more aware of the different cultures that make up different workplaces. I think the more that those things become priority for us, the more we need to be also prioritizing understanding how different people communicate differently and how that's valid for those individuals, but that we need to learn how to communicate together. And I think that there's still a lot of misunderstanding and blatantly some ignorance around how people from different walks of life communicate and express emotion within the workplace or out of the workplace. So I think this is an incredibly important topic because I think the more we can understand how people communicate based off of their life experiences and their backgrounds, the better prepared we are to actually put into practice the inclusive culture we say we want in our organizations. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about this particular episode is that communication is something that came up repeatedly, I would say not just this season, but in past seasons. And I think it's one of the things that people care the most deeply about not just what is said, but how it's said, by whom it's said, to whom it's said. And then when we were talking about really showing up in the fullness of people's identities, what came up a lot was that people just don't want to be able to show up as themselves in terms of race, religion, culture, background, sexual orientation, that they want to be able to show up how they're feeling and talk about it, not necessarily with the same level of exposure or vulnerability that they might share in their personal relationships, but that people don't want to compartmentalize and hide who they are. And I thought, yeah, it was 
in some ways, this episode was really central to the narrative of what it is to be an employee. And I can say that for me, I had a lot of takeaways from this episode and things that I learned. I think in particular, I learned a lot about communication style from Deborah Tannen. And I think a lot about listening and not judging people maybe based on their style of communication and not assuming that people will communicate the same way that I do. I feel like this was a really rich episode for me, both personally and professionally. But what are some of both of your takeaways from this episode? Yeah, I agree, Darylise. I think it was a fantastic episode. I kind of wish I heard all this information when I was coming out of college. It would have been even more beneficial to me. I think there was one part that really struck a nerve with me because I had issues in this space. And that's back when I was trying to elevate my career and either didn't or just didn't know how to negotiate with my salary. My communication style wasn't really conducive to that environment. Communication coming from manager or a boss to employee and and how to do that best, keeping proper leadership in mind, the whole receiving and believing. Like there, there were so many gems dropped. Like I know we'll get into it more during this episode, but I really encourage anyone who is entering the workforce to take a really hard listen at this episode and, and maybe listen to it twice because uh, it was just so many great things that I was able to pick up for sure. I agree, Zach. One of the first bullet points that I wrote down was the receiving and believing. That was at the very intro of the episode. But for me, I am someone who maybe not always, it's probably not the best at times, but I'm very aware of how I communicate. And I think a lot of that has to do with me being a woman of color and occupying a lot of spaces that are predominantly white. At times, I code switch a lot. So for me, this episode, I think someone had said taking the space and making it work for you, right? And so I've constantly had to figure out how to show up in this room and be comfortable with showing up still an authentic version of myself, but also like a slightly adjusted version of that authentic version of myself, depending on who my audience is, who I'm speaking with and communicating with. But I think my biggest takeaway from this episode is just the importance of understanding who I am in that room, but also who the others are in that room and how I might communicate and then doing my best to try to understand how they might communicate. Because we all come from so many different areas in life. And I just think that that is something that sometimes I can be at fault for, which is being so aware of how I'm showing up in a room that I'm not doing the best reading the cues and understanding how other people are showing up and other people's communication styles. And communication being so important as it is, I think that the more you can understand, the more you can work that room, work that experience in a way that not only validates your authenticity and how you need to show up in terms of how you communicate, but it also gives other people a space to be their authentic selves. So yeah, just, I mean, so many gems, but self-awareness for me is one of the big takeaways. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every 
age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world, local, and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. I love that you both mentioned receiving and believing and that you were, Zaria, you were speaking about the authenticity piece. And one of the things that I'm aware of is that how we are received differs uh, based on other people's assumptions. And in this episode, we talked a little bit about how specific emotions, like I'm thinking of the example of anger, right? And that there are different expectations when it comes to women in the workplace and expressing anger than men, right? And there's not nearly enough research on non-binary folks, but in general, people who hold marginalized identities, right, are not encouraged to show up and express themselves in every area as authentically. And so I'm just wondering if how we're received is different based on our identity, right? So like, for example, if a white man can be angry, but a black man can't be in that certain space, or a woman of color can't be in that certain space, how do we still show up authentically knowing that how we're received might not be how we deserve to be received? I think one of the things that was mentioned in the episode that I think touches on this 
is that whole element of checking in. If I were to express myself in a work environment and I know I might be perceived as angry or upset after I said what I had to say, I might give some sort of clarification to let them know exactly how I feel. I'm not saying this out of anger. I'm saying this out of displeasure because what we tried to execute on didn't work or I need something different from my colleagues or from this situation and just give that extra element of clarification so that someone knows afterwards if they perceived it a certain way. I want to be sure that you you know exactly how I meant it because it isn't always the way that it came out or that someone perceived it. So I think that's what I would do to, to try to solve that issue or to, to quell it to some degree. Yeah, I'm torn on this one a little bit because there's this part of me that I often specifically for like black women encourage us to just be unapologetic, but also like, I think that you can get fired or get in trouble for being a little too unapologetic. So then there's this part of me that feels like, I guess like the better response in that sense would be, I think whenever you feel like you're about to respond to something and you have heavy emotion at the forefront of what you're about to say, I think the safe approach is if you have the opportunity to do so, step away for a moment. I think we live in a time where you have to respond to everything quickly. We don't often give ourselves time to really process what it is that we're feeling in order to bring our best response forward. So I think just pressing pause on a situation is so important in those instances where you do have heavy emotions, specifically emotions that could be deemed as negative, because you also want for yourself to feel good about what you're about to say to someone. I think that's a natural human desire is that you want to reflect on that situation later on and be able to say like, you know what, I handled that really well. I'm proud of myself. But you can't always do that if you act instantaneously on emotions. So I would say like that's something I've been trying to put in practice is just quieting myself and not responding right away or taking a walk or something to compose myself and and find a way to respect this person who I have to communicate with, but also feel good about whatever it is that I am saying ultimately, because that's important to me as well for my own self-respect. Well, and clearly from both your answers, and I mean, I know this by virtue of having the opportunity to work with both of you, which has been wonderful, but you you both have a high level of emotional intelligence, right? And from the research that I've been doing, emotional intelligence is crucial in the workplace. 90% of top performers have a high level of EI and emotional intelligence is responsible for over 60% of people's professional and personal achievements, which I think speaks of volume. So can we talk a little bit about the importance of developing emotional intelligence at work? Because it would seem like, I know Tom Edwards thanked me for not calling emotional intelligence skills soft skills. And I know often they're presented in that way, but I think they're hugely important and hard hitting skills that have a lot of positive momentum or negative momentum based on whether or not they exist? Well, for me, just in in my experiences, when I used to work in corporate, working for the Nets basketball team, I think emotional intelligence was not a very big emphasis for most folks. And again, I was in a space where a lot of the people who I worked with directly were salespeople. Their job was to pick up a phone and make phone calls and get results. And I was always very much more of a a people person. I actually did not like using a script. I felt there was a deeper element to communication. Now, I didn't call it emotional intelligence. I didn't know what it was, 
but I knew I was I was successful doing it and it was part of who I was as a person. And I actually realized after the fact that most of my close friends, the people I gravitated to in that space, also were very emotional, intelligent. And the fact that I now know what that is, one of my mentors, when I moved to Philadelphia, uh, I consider her, at least in my eyes, one of the pioneers of this space and, and Jen Groover. She educated me on it a lot and I started to focus on it more. And it really served me well as an entrepreneur in a very unique sort of working environment. I work with 15, 20, 30 different individuals all really within a week. And the ability for me to understand what people are going through or have each sort of conversation in the silo and not be stagnant in the way that I communicate has served me really well in this entrepreneurial space. I know sometimes I think when you're in corporate, it can get a little complacent because you're looking at the same people talking sometimes about the same thing every day and not really factoring in the other things that go into what impacts how someone responds or how someone appears at work. So I know it's very important in that space as well, but I think I'm lucky to have emotional intelligence and be in this entrepreneurial space because it serves well. I think it's very hard to be an entrepreneur who deals directly with individuals on a regular basis and not have emotional intelligence. I think that's a recipe for disaster. I could only imagine. <laughs> First, I would say this statistic that Darylise just mentioned is a bit of a shocker to me. I don't know why, but I just think of when we say like high top performers, I think of like the 1% and I think of a lot of them probably not having the greatest level of emotional <laughs> intelligence. But yeah, maybe I just need to like cast a broader net when I'm thinking of top performers. For me, similar to what Zach was saying, I don't think I always even knew what emotional intelligence was. I think that is a newer phrase that's really being pushed in today's culture. But for me, it's always been empathy. And in order to have empathy, you have to know how to read a room and try to really receive what a person is saying and understand it for like the many different layers of you kind of have to like decode it a little bit, like what can really be going on beyond just what it is that they're saying. And that's a practice that I've really implemented in my life, honestly, since I was a child, I think, just because I was brought up in so many unique circumstances, uh, having a sister with a disability, being from a single mother household. Like, I just think a lot of layers of my identity called for me to be empathetic towards other people. And now as an adult, see the value of emotional intelligence and being able to understand that people are bringing so many layers of complexity to every environment that they are a part of. And I think that when leaders and organizations prioritize a workforce that values emotional intelligence, it will show in the work that is then produced. And it was mentioned so many times throughout this episode, but just like a safe space and feeling you can bring your authentic self to work, feeling like you are amongst people who value emotional intelligence. When you have that sense of security in your workplace, it allows you to feel like you can communicate in a way that really embodies who you are. And that also if you slip up or make a mistake and communicate something that's maybe not the best way to communicate it, you know that you're in a space where, hey, these people value emotional intelligence, which hopefully means that I can come and learn from my mistake or have an opportunity to correct it without being canceled out. And so there's a ton of value from having emotional intelligence prioritize within your organization, but it really has to start with the leadership, in my opinion. So I think that the world would be a better place if more leaders prioritize that. 
Absolutely. And I just want to clarify, because I love that you called out that statistic that it's 90% of top performers, not top earners. <laughs> and I think later on in this season, we're going to be talking about success. And like, I think that the metrics for success are really important to talk about because earning is one thing, but encouraging a team, motivating people, building relationships, forming a cohesive network, being willing to grow and adapt and be agile, like all of those things are different. And sometimes those are monetized, but sometimes they're not. And so I think that you definitely point to part of a larger conversation that hopefully we're going to have continually, but certainly in the success episode later this season. Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylise and I are so grateful you've tuned into season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, We ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening. Now, I'm curious, was there anything that didn't make it into this episode that you would have wanted to include? One of the things that came up is something that we have touched on a little bit, but not particularly in this episode, but people who experience emotion in non-typical ways. So perhaps individuals with neurodiversity or people who have been through trauma, like one of the responses to trauma can be fight, flight, freeze or fawn. And knowing some of my own life experiences, like there are times when I might be disconnected from my emotions. I might be numb. And then how do you communicate when the feeling on the inside differs from what the outside is doing, right? And so there are a lot of different dynamics, I think, to how we show up, how vulnerable or how safe we feel in an environment to let our emotions out or how safe we feel within ourselves to let our emotions out. But that would have made for (laughs) double the episode length. But that certainly is something that I would want listeners to think about for themselves and within their networks. So yeah, I just feel like that's something I would have wanted to explore a bit more. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think I would just love an entire episode on like the trope of the angry Black woman. I think that when I was thinking of communicating and emoting at work, that's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about the fact that it is still an issue for Black and Brown women to be able to rightfully so express an emotion that maybe they are angry, but for good reason. And to just be written off as like, oh, you're dramatic, you're angry, and it's incredibly invalidating. And so as we see more Black women moving up in slowly but surely (laughs) in more executive CEO positions, leadership positions, and when you start talking about Black women 
really managing large teams, entire organizations. I want to know how we are creating better cultures to receive those Black women when they have to express emotions or communicate in a way that they should have the right to, that other people can express in that same manner and not be reprimanded for it. I want to know how workplace cultures are working to address that specifically, because in in my mind, and this is shaped by my life experiences and the people who I surround myself with and love, but in my mind, when we talk about communication in the workplace, I still instantly go to the fact that the biggest issue in my mind, again, is that Black women are not allowed to show up and express themselves with emotions that a lot of their colleagues can express themselves with, but when a Black woman does it, it comes off as being angry and negative. And again, I really want to create more time and airspace for that conversation because it's one that I feel like isn't had enough. We talk about it for like what feels like a short duration of time and then we move on to talk about other issues, but it's one that continues to feel like it has just become a bigger and bigger problem over the years. Yeah, I would love to just talk about that for an entire episode. Yeah, and maybe we can do that in subsequent seasons. But in the meantime, I do think it'd be really important to, we'll put some links in the show notes for resources, like whether it be articles or different TED Talks or something, we we will put our heads together and put some links in the show notes that people can check out. Because you're right, it is an important topic. And it's an important topic for now, like not just to delay. So I thank you so much for raising that as a point. And we definitely will put more information in the show notes. So listeners, please click those links and check those out. I think now would be a perfect time to move into our expert interview section of the Q&A episode. Our Q&A expert for this episode is Deanna Geddes, who is a professor at the Fox School of Business and Management and works specifically in the management department. Also, as a college professor, Deanna's mission statement is to help students think new thoughts in ways that enhance their personal and professional lives. She seeks to help people understand how effective communication, including communicating emotions, can strengthen relationships and change lives for the better. So, Daralise, let's play the clip of your interview with Deanna, and then the three of us will come back and discuss it. We demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark, invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Tell me about, like, how did you get into this work? So how did I become a college professor? Yeah, and specifically with the emphasis on communication and on emotions in the workplace. Well, I taught third grade science at a small computer-oriented school in the 80s. And as much as I loved that first experience in the classroom, I decided I definitely wanted to teach adults. And so (laughs) I knew that I, I needed to get my doctorate degree at some point. And an opportunity arose for me to attend Purdue University. And with my little four-year-old daughter in tow, we went to West Lafayette, Indiana, and I got my degree in 
organizational communication and industrial psychology. And I was fortunate enough to be hired by Temple University's School of Business. And the rest is history, 35 years now at Temple. You said organizational psychology. And what was the second discipline? IO psychology is industrial and organizational psychology. And my primary emphasis was in organizational communication. So if you're asking, why do I do what I do? I'm a social scientist in a business school because I want to better understand human behavior in organizations, including because they are fundamental to human interactions, communication and emotional expression being a part of that. Well, and how has your intellectual understanding and your research changed how you communicate and emote? Well, let me speak generally and then I'll get specific. So generally, as a college professor and a social scientist, it's turned me into a lifelong learner. There's nothing like facing several (laughs) sections of undergraduates or MBAs or doctoral students to keep you on your toes. So you have to always be focused on what's happening, what's new, what's how can I improve. But I'm also a big fan of Stephen Covey. And what's really changed me just as an individual is I definitely am a person who seeks first to understand and then to be understood. That's my goal is to try to understand why we do what we do instead of always just over-asserting myself and trying just to keep the focus on myself. I really try to learn from others. So that's my general comment. I guess more specifically, because I study workplace anger, I guess I can say that There definitely was a time in my life when I was very fearful of anger. I saw anger as dangerous. And it wasn't until I started studying anger after having studied workplace aggression to know that they're actually very different. And it became my mission to explain not only to fellow scientists in the field who at the time were using those terms interchangeably, aggression and anger were regularly used interchangeably in the literature And I knew that aggression was behavior with the intent to harm. When you express anger, if you think about last time you expressed anger to somebody, were you trying to harm them or were you trying to let them know you were harmed? (laughs) (laughs) And so they really are different creatures. Now they can be related. I mean, while most of the time when we aggress, when we're aggressive, we are angry, but very little anger is expressed with the intent to to harm others. It's mostly to inform others. So as a consequence of my focus in the area of workplace emotion in particular, and you know, as a subset, if you will, of expressing in general and communication in general, it becomes critical to recognize that workplace anger can be a very positive part of a work environment. It can help identify problems if you're a manager. And I tell my MBAs all the time, if an employee comes to you angry, don't think of them as someone who you want to get rid of. You want to thank them because they came to you. They came to you with their concern, with the belief that you could help them. And so angry employees can be very useful change agents and can be very helpful to managers who are trying to fix what's going on in the workplace and make sure that things are running smoothly. 
I want to ask you more about how to communicate emotions, but before I do that, I just want to point out, Deanna, that my perception is that based around certain identity factors, right? So like gender, let's say, or race, that anger is perceived differently, right? That like it becomes viewed as a threat or as a a no-go zone for certain people, depending on their race, depending on their gender, depending on other identity factors. And so I'm so curious, does your work talk about the differences in anger and accessing anger and expressing anger across identity lines? Very much so in the sense that what I use to help people understand workplace anger and honestly, any sort of emotional expression or human expression in any social context, right, that we can choose to express or not express. So we can suppress that anger. We can suppress those feelings or we can express them. Now we can express them in a way that others would find completely acceptable. There are some cultures that you scream and yell and hug at the same time. There are other cultures where even raising your voice is totally inappropriate. So it depends on the environment, the culture, the expectations. And these are going to be very different for lots of reasons. But if you cross that line of impropriety, and my model to explain this is called the dual threshold model. And the first threshold is an expression threshold. If you cross that, you're expressing yourself. But if you cross, I call it, if you double cross, if you cross that second threshold, which is impropriety, that's where you get in trouble and that's where you offend and that's where you escalate. So it's in that wonderful space between, like Dave Matthews Band would say, in the space between, or one of my mentors, Stephen Feynman, would say in the zone of expressive tolerance, where between these two thresholds of opening up and expressing what's inside, but doing it in a manner that it's not offensive to others, that's where all the good things happen. And so that's what I'm trying to help people understand that these two thresholds, by the way, move. They vary depending upon your environment. Like for instance, employees working in a service industry who are employed to express a cheerful countenance and not to be contrary in any way with the customer and certainly not to express anger, right? There's no space between expression and impropriety. You express it, you've crossed the line, right? And then there are other environments where there's this great space between the expression threshold and the impropriety threshold, where you have all this space to just scream and yell and work things out however it has worked in the past because people have found that acceptable. And so it varies. Now, the thing that's really important in the dual threshold model, which I published with my co-author, Rhonda Collister, has opened up a new world for me in the sense of it's helping me understand human interaction in general, not just workplace anger and even not even just emotion, but we have opinions and beliefs and things that, that are inside of us. So everything that's inside of us, right? We choose to suppress it or express it. So we may spend a lot of our time suppressing what's inside of us. So we don't ever really cross that expression threshold. And the research has shown and psychology has shown and psychiatry in the medical field has shown that suppressed emotion or suppressed feelings that are important to us tend to make us very sick. 
And that includes depression, high blood pressure. And in workplaces, when you don't express it, no one finds out where the problems are, what's making people upset. So you perpetuate all these problems without ever learning about it. That's why I, again, encourage my MBAs not to be afraid or not to be offended when someone comes to them angry. They're getting information that they can now spend their attention and work on. So that's where most of the damage is done is in the suppression area. And again, sometimes you work in environments where there is very little room to express without us getting in trouble because we set the expression line. We choose what to express or not. So do we open it up ourselves? Do we Are we an open book or are we a real closed book? Depending upon the environment, sometimes with our close friends, we really open up, but maybe at work, we really close down. So we keep a lot of things close to us. But that impropriety threshold, we don't set that. It's the observer, it's the witness, it's the participant who sets that impropriety threshold. So we have to be very sensitive and recognize, well, why did you get upset? Don't be surprised when they're upset because you thought you didn't do anything wrong. They will set the impropriety threshold, right? In that space between where we express what's inside, that's where we find out who we are. And that's when we can share who we are with other people we come in contact with. Otherwise, we don't know people's boundaries. We don't know people's limitations. We don't know people's concerns or frustrations because it's all inside. So you can imagine the potential value of feeling comfortable enough to express yourself and having others allow you that freedom to express yourself without saying, you've crossed the line, I'm not talking to you anymore, or you're in trouble now. So this is that wonderful zone of expressive tolerance. What we're saying with each other is where we learn about each other and what really matters and what's inside. So this dual threshold model is a very handy tool to help people understand the idea of suppression, expression, and deviant, what we would call deviant, meaning it deviates from the social norms of the other person. They don't like what you're doing because that's not polite conversation, or you can't talk to me like that, right? So we mean deviant only in the sense of it deviates from what the person thinks is appropriate. So in my model, I talk about suppressed emotion, expressed emotion, and deviant emotion. And it's in that space between those two thresholds, which again, move depending upon your culture and the culture you're in and the person with whom you're interacting and your comfort level with expressing these all vary. And it just helps you understand that there is a space where we can have great conversations and really strengthen relationships. You know, I love that. And I'm so curious because I know you were talking about the dangers of suppressed emotion. And one of the things that Deanna comes up for me is that if I suppress and suppress and suppress, then often when the emotion comes out, it comes out in a way that like, frankly, I'm sort of ashamed of, right? Like I I don't want it to come out in that way. And so I'm curious, how does someone who maybe has been suppressing their anger at work or any other feeling, their vulnerability? ability, their shame. Authenticity is another factor. Yeah. But how do you make that transition to expression after suppression without pendulum swing? Lots of different ways. So certainly with emotion, I tell people all the time when it comes to expressing emotion, again, the goal is to be willing to express it. So not suppress it, but being willing to cross that expression threshold so other people can know what's going on inside of us. 
but in a manner that wouldn't offend or frighten them, for instance. So Thomas Jefferson once said, if you're angry, count to 10. And if you're really angry, count to 100. So to try to avoid that intense buildup, as you talk about in the first place, is just get more comfortable telling people, you know what, what just happened has ticked me off or I am angry. Give me 10 minutes to calm down and we have a conversation about this because something has to change going forward. So I just tell people, identify the emotion. Let people know, no, you're not confused. No, you're not surprised. You're angry that they failed to produce what they said that they would produce. And give them that hint that they have crossed a line with you of what you feel is acceptable behavior. And that's what made you angry. That's what makes us angry in the first place, that someone has crossed a line for us. They've either done something inappropriate socially, or they've prevented us from trying to achieve our goals that are valued. We talk about crossing the line, and I think that's why I ended up using the that term in my model of crossing the line, the dual threshold model. But it's in these crossing the lines that we then find out what I can get away with and what I can't get away with with this other person. And so sometimes when we call it emotional hijacking, where it's just build up and we just kind of let it out and maybe we're embarrassed about that afterwards. You know what? Sometimes when people understand why we're so upset, there's this wonderful concept called forbearance. And forbearance is basically you as the observer moving that impropriety threshold further out and say, listen, under the circumstances, I totally get. It's totally understandable why you're so upset. And so that's kindness on the part of the other. But for us, of course, if we feel like we've crossed the line, we can certainly apologize. I often tell my women students in particular because Women expressing anger at work is a little more damaging to them than for men. Often, in fact, when men express anger, it tends to elevate their status, whereas for women, it tends to reduce their status. So it's very important, nevertheless, for both of us to, first of all, try to reduce that intensity, count to 10, take a drink of water, take a little walk, some deep breathing exercises, and then identify the emotion for the other so they know that now you weren't just confused you were really angry that someone had violated a trust with you on turning in their work appropriately and things like that and so as people better understand that what they have done has been inappropriate they're more likely to apologize themselves or explain themselves or you can see how this opens up conversation if you're willing to identify it the other person then can say oh i had no no idea that would offend you Most of us don't go around trying to offend other people. Nevertheless, it happens regularly, right? So this is why it's helpful when instead of just never talking to the person ever again, approaching them and saying, you know, when you did this, it made me very upset. Can we talk about it? I value our friendship. I'd like us to work this out. So I always look at expression of emotion, whether we are a little too intense or we suppress it, I go, if we can just be more willing to express an honest emotion and being willing to to listen to that, as I say, be curious, not furious when someone expresses anger to you, because our tendency is, you can't talk to me like that, or don't you get angry at me like that. But I always say, look, be curious, not furious, look behind the anger, what's made you so upset? And what can we do to fix that? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I have a follow-up question about that, but I would be remiss if I didn't ask you. So you mentioned men and women and anger. Is there any research that you're aware of about non-binary folks and the expression of anger or whether it be research and statistical data or anecdotal experiences around that? That's a good question. I think it's still a relatively underdeveloped and understudied idea and identity in the social sciences, although, of course, it's increasing. I would say that in general, minorities, however you define that, the non-majority tend to be at greater risk when they express anger as far as being identified as inappropriate expression. So there is that double whammy, that frustration, like the angry black woman, for instance, right? Or that stereotype that has been so unfairly perpetuated. This is where we come back and say, listen, I am trying to express how I feel. How can I do that in a manner that is not going to offend you, but, you know, for you to better understand? So there's two parties in these conversations, or more, of course, right? But generally, those in minority women, a minority status, a minority gender orientation, these tend to have the greatest challenges when it comes to trying to express emotion without being perceived as inappropriate by the other. Well, and I'm curious, like how much status plays into a person's ability to express emotion. I know what you said about minority, but it's possible to be a privileged majority identity and maybe not have a certain level of status within an organization versus someone in a managerial role. Is it safer for certain people to express anger? Is it more toxic for certain people to express anger? Like, how does that work? There is actually the term of emotional privilege. So you're right on. Management has emotional privilege. They often can scream and yell and not have sanctions raised against them. And in fact, some people actually practice anger as a motivational tool. The screaming coach at halftime, right? We have these models of people expressing anger to motivate people. But my own research has shown that when managers express anger to their employees, even if they do it, for instance, in private, you praise publicly, you you criticize privately, that person very often will go back and then tell their friends that you chewed them out. Then their friends are going to be rallying around them and saying, well, that's not fair. And so you actually end up creating this morale problem, even though you thought you were having a pinpointed conversation with one person. But the one thing that I have learned and with regard to anger, is it's a form of pain and suffering. Anger is a form of pain and suffering. And the biggest mistake that we have made over the years in the sciences and even just general public is that we equate anger and aggression. They are not the same. Aggression is behavior that's with the intent to harm somebody. Talking behind someone's back, hitting somebody, that the intention is to harm somebody. But when you express anger, it's coming from a place of hurt. And so imagine this scene. So you see someone sitting on the curb and they're obviously angry. Are you going to approach that person? Most people would not. But imagine you saw that person and said, they're sad. Do you see how it could be much more, that person could be, and of course, I'm not asking anyone to put them in a potentially dangerous situation, but, you know, with a friend or a boss or a coworker, if you can recognize that often that anger comes from a place of hurt and upset, 
then you're much more likely to respond to them more compassionately, more willing to listen. Now, again, with that privilege, that management, and I really want to emphasize this, going back to the dual threshold model, that space between expression and impropriety is usually really wide open for them. And for their employees, it becomes a much narrower space between those thresholds. And so I always tell my my managers and my MBAs, I go, you close down that space for you. Reduce your anger intensity. Reduce so that, you know, that anger is more likely to be seen as an acceptable display. Don't think you can scream and yell and curse and it's not going to be any big deal because it really will be a big deal ultimately with that relationship you have. And again, people will talk and you can have a bad morale problem very quickly if you're screaming and yelling at people. So reduce that intensity on your part, but allow it more with your employees because then they'll be willing to come to you more regularly when they're upset. The number one reason why managers get upset is poor performance. The number one reason employees get upset and angry is what they perceive as something is unfair. And so just that knowledge helps you understand, okay, this person's really upset. They think there's something unfair going on. And again, a little sympathy to the manager. They have a lot of pressure too, but it's always better from a manager, even though the manager has that privilege without as much of a likelihood that they will be sanctioned by expressing anger. I still tell them, keep the intensity low, keep keep it as low as you possibly can and still let them know that's unacceptable and that's made you mad. The way that you're talking about this, the ability to keep the intensity low and also express an emotion, you know, during this episode, we talked a little bit about the different styles of communication and we talked about communicating about the communication itself, like that meta communication of like, hey, did what I say land for you? Do you want me to deliver this message in a different way or tell me about the impact of this particular conversation or if I'm feeling like something is unfair, what do I say to approach that or address that? So yeah, can you offer some examples of how metacommunication can support in a workplace setting? It's actually a great technique. And it's something you can certainly develop and learn to practice. And in fact, try to explain to people that in the field of communication, they're really two orientations to what is communication. One is what we'd call a source-oriented view of communication, and this comes out of speech and rhetoric. And that's really the intention of the speaker is to share a message. And if I have done that, I've communicated. But a receiver-oriented view of what is communication is very much the idea of you not communicate. And meanings are in people, not in you. So the goal is not so much the intentionality of sending you a message. Did you get the memo? I sent the memo. My work is done. I, did you get the memo? You know, I'm kind of referring to Office Space, the movie. But from a receiver-oriented view of communication, your, your goal is shared understanding. So you're always trying to make sure that what you're saying, the other person is understanding as you intended. So that is the better mindset, certainly in an organizational setting, and frankly, in most social situations, I guess beyond even the speech and rhetoric, but but again, your nonverbals, what are you saying with your the tone of your voice and not just what you say? So people are going to look at us, hear us, and have their own interpretation. So the goal there, again, is to try to do everything you can to have some sort of shared understanding. So that's where that meta communication can come in is when you can say, for instance, when you said this, 
it made me feel this way. Was that your intention or did I misinterpret this? So when you are trying to have this shared understanding, you often will be more inclined to say, let me see if I've got this right. Or can you clarify that a little bit more? I'm not sure I understand what you meant by X, right? That's a helpful mindset if you're really trying to incrementally improve your communication skill sets. And, you know, I think that's what we're all trying to do. When I first started teaching at Temple University and I was hired actually to develop an organizational communication course in the business schools, the first one they had, and I would have my students come in and say, why do I have to take a communication class? I've been talking since I was two. What's the big deal? I obviously am literate and can write an essay. I'm in college, right? So I had a little bit of an uphill climb initially to reinforce to my students that management, that leadership is communication, (laughs) that relationships are communication, (laughs) that organizations are people interacting with each other to gather information to do their job. Everything we do comes down to communication. And just like the Olympic swimmer spends hours every day on the fundamentals, the stroke, the stroke, the kick, the breathing, right? We can do the same thing as communicators if we want to try and improve. And and certainly that's what we should try and do is look at the basics. Are we a good listener? Are we a good speaker, a good writer? Are we a good conversationalist? Where can we improve? And, And that's where, again, that receiver oriented view of communication. Did I make sense? Did you like the memo? Am I dominating the conversation? You know, you're seeking feedback so that you can tweak your skill set so you can incrementally try to improve. And if you have that, I just want us to understand each other mindset, you're more likely to engage in those types of seeking feedback opportunities, right? Does that make sense? Does that, do you understand me? <laughs> yes, yes. And it absolutely does make sense. And I do understand. And speaking of those who are seeking to improve their communication skills, who are active and engaged listeners, we have some listener calling questions that, Deanna, I would love for you to answer now so we can just go ahead and play the first one. Hi, my name is Andrea, and I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. If I have employees whose communication needs improvement, what can I do to help them to be more effective without trying to change who they are? Thank you. I love that question because I tell my students, I want them to be themselves, but I want them to be their best selves or better selves. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the mindset. We can try to do all that we can to improve on on ourselves. So feedback is a great tool. And I guess what one of the goals would be if I was a manager would to try to raise the sense of sensitivities of other people to try and work with them so we can avoid mistakes and develop their skill sets. And we benefit from this learning mindset. Everything is helping me learn, whether you give me positive feedback or constructive criticism. So feedback is meant to help. I talked about the source versus the receiver. If you recognize that you're just trying to help and maybe people are not responding to you in the way that is most beneficial, then you probably have more of a source-oriented view. I said it. What's their problem? If they don't get it, that's their problem. No, if they don't get it, that's your problem. So a good manager would naturally be concerned about that. Someone who works in teams or who faces clients, you want them to be sensitive to that. 
So the more we can be aware of the effect we have on others, that is really worth taking some time to explore with your employees. So I think that's a worthy goal for any manager is to try and help their employees improve their communication skills. You're not trying to change them. You're trying to just help them be their better and best selves. Thank you so much for that answer, Deanna. And I love the question. I think that if in a managerial position, a person gets more stylistic diversity about how to engage with people who have different communication styles or who have different styles of working, it's only going to make them more effective both at work and in their lives outside of work. That's the thing about communication and teaching it and studying. Everything's relevant regardless of the context, right? work or home or play, social, the skill sets are going to be very similar. So I love that. Should I take another call? Yeah, let's move to Kathy's question. Hi, my name is Kathy. And I wanted to ask the question, how much do you feel like how much do the industries that we work in shape the way that we talk to each other and shape the way that we talk to ourselves? Thanks so much. There will always be different norms in different environments, communities, industries, or fields of study. So our experiences, our practice in these environments and the positive reinforcement that we get will certainly shape our communication practices. So lawyers are taught to be argumentative and to make strong arguments, right? Whereas service workers are taught to be encouraging and friendly and cheerful, right? So we definitely can vary and there probably are different expectations in different environments and different professions. Regarding self-talk, appreciation, encouragement, that's never a bad practice, however you choose to do it. I'm sure some fields will likely encourage self-reflection more than others. Psychology, for instance, might be much more inclined to do that than maybe some, some other field. I'm not sure which. I don't want to cast aspersions on any other field. <laughs> but the availability of feedback is often the key factor. So it, both for developing your communication skill set, but also how comfortable you are as a, an individual in that particular environment. That was a great question. And Deanna, a great answer. Can I just ask quickly, do you find that direct feedback is more impactful than anonymous feedback? Does it matter? That's a really good distinction. I think for many people, when they provide anonymous feedback, they can be more direct. And sometimes that also comes off as more harsh. If the purpose of feedback, which it should be, is to help, then if we as the receiver of that information can know that the person is trying to come from a place to help, then we're more, more likely to accept that feedback. But there are strategies that have been encouraged with regard to feedback. The one most notorious that people tend to still practice, I think, thinking that it's the right way to do it is called the sandwich technique. Say something positive, then get to the root of the problem, and then end with something positive. But I have found that invariably people are more confused after that type of feedback on what needs to be done or if they're okay or if they're not okay with their boss. So I instead teach the open face sandwich, which is you do start with a positive comment, which shows to the person that you have seen them doing good things. So that gives you credibility in their mindset. 
as an undergraduate, I had a great developmental psychology professor who says, you know, most of the time parents talk to their kids, they're reprimanding them. So he says, catch them being good, catch them being good. I've always remembered that. And I think that's the same principle works in management. So catch them being good, praise them when every chance you get. But certainly if you do have to correct a behavior, start with a positive, let them know you've seen them do good things. And that also reduces their defensiveness right up front, because a lot of us don't like to hear where we're doing something wrong. But then say, I've noticed this behavior, and I think we need to try something different to have the outcome we're looking for. So let's try something different. And you have that conversation. What can we do? And then you leave it open and say, let's meet again in in two weeks after you try this new approach or whatever. We'll get back together and let's see how that's working. So you're not ending, hey, but you're a really great person. I really like everything you're doing. You're, you know, you don't do that. You let them know that they're a valuable employee. You've seen them do good things. There's something that in their behavior that needs to change. And you're going to follow up with them and see how that's changed in the future. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, I think we can move to the next question. Hey, guys, I have a question. Uh, I was wondering, if I'm trying to be more emotionally vulnerable and open, how can I do that in a way that is professional? Love the podcast. Look forward to uh, you answering my question. Thanks, guys. I talk to my students regularly about what we call the warmth factor, the warmth factor. And this is a powerful asset for speakers or consultants, managers. And basically what it means is that you are seen as approachable and you have essentially tried to reduce the psychological distance between you and and another person. So the warmth factor can be enhanced as, as easily as just smiling more. If we smile just a bit more, that certainly can add to that factor. I think identifying our feelings without having a strong degree of intensity. If you're sad, I would wait until maybe you're through crying (laughs) before you talk to someone and say, I'm really struggling here. I'm feeling sad about and fill in the blank. So in general, I encourage people to identify their emotion, but to first reduce the intensity. And I think that is seen as a more professional approach in a work environment co-signed. And I love that, the idea of being authentic, but perhaps maybe, I don't want to say muted, that might be the wrong way to put it, but not being intense or amplified and yet still being authentic and really true to oneself. And I love the concrete ways that you talk about navigating that. Yes. And emotions have a social trigger and related to that is they tend to be short-lived. So this is why if you give it a little time, that intensity that, you know, that hormonal arousal or whatever has stirred up these strong feelings and however they're displayed, if you give a little time, they will dissipate. So that's why I encourage people to take a little time to reduce the intensity and then to identify the emotion And then invite the opportunity for further communication to help address the initial trigger. I love that. Thank you so much. So yeah, let's move to the next question. Hi, I actually have a question. Uh, Your last episode talked about differences in communication styles. And I know that different people have different styles, but are there some that are objectively more effective than others? Thanks so much. I'm not exactly sure all the different communication styles that may have been discussed previously, but 
I can speak a little bit from beyond. I know that certainly there are regional cultural differences in our communication styles, but I tend to look at communication from a management perspective. And so depending upon our orientation to effective management, we tend to adopt certain communication styles that reflect that mindset. So in my field, we talk about five key foundational approaches to management. We call them classical human relations, human resources, systems, and cultural approaches. A classical approach to management is the the classic hierarchy. The job of the manager is to instruct, to direct, to evaluate, and provide incentive, usually financial. And so from that perspective, my style of communication would be very focused on being clear, being direct, being formal in my interactions with people, because from that perspective, informality is really inappropriate in the workplace. It's more akin to, or the background of being too informal would be like examples of nepotism. And the bureaucracy was originally a good idea, which was people were put in a position because they were qualified, not because they were the son of the owner. (laughs) So the idea of being formal because of your position and people respecting that authority was seen as very good practice. And so as a consequence, my communication behavior would be, again, very formal and things like that. But in response to that, the human relations movement, and these were contemporaries, they said, hey, a happy worker is a productive worker. And they were very influenced by psychology and Freud. And we need to let people express themselves. We need to seek their information and they'll feel better about themselves. And relationships are valuable in the workplace because people will work harder when they're happy with their coworkers. So my style of communication, if I had that mindset, would be very much about encouragement and support and getting people together. I would probably be a lot more informal in my interaction with people. So you can see, depending upon your your approach to management, you would adopt different styles of communication. This is a long lecture on the topic. If I were to adopt a cultural perspective, I would be very much oriented to help you assimilate into my culture and get you excited about being part of the team and being an insider. And then once you've accepted our mission, our values, and our belief structure, our language, if you will, I would try to inspire you to stay excited about being there. So again, my style of communication would very much reflect how I felt good organizations run. And from a cultural perspective, it's socialization and inspiration. So all the storytelling that we do now in business comes out of that field of, honestly, anthropology, which influenced the cultural movement in the 80s. And In Search of Excellence was, of course, a key book at the time that influenced that movement, which was very symbolic to in response to systems, which was very analytical, information change-oriented, how do we survive? And in that case, what's key in communication is networking, networking information sharing and uncertainty reduction. So I could go on, but I don't want to bore the audience. (laughs) Wow. Well, I'm not bored at all. And now I feel like I have some homework to do because Zach and I, my business partner, will go into organizations and we'll do trainings. 
And I've definitely been in organizations that are more culturally oriented and then organizations that take a more sort of human resources approach and organizations that are more classical. And just based on what you were saying, I was like, that makes so much sense. So thank you for that homework assignment. I'm going to go down a research rabbit hole after this. Well, there are those five, and I would add a six, if you will, power approach to understanding how organizations work. It's about negotiation and authority and sources of power and influence. And so being a good persuader would be very key in in that perspective. But in general, even though these are very foundational from literally the age of the scientific approach or the scientific method, excuse me, that was then incorporated into the idea of classical management and efficiencies and things like that. So a good hundred and hundred or so years of foundational management has really shaped people and how they interact and how they even view what is good communication or effective management. And so the key is each one of these has strengths and weaknesses, right? So the goal is to understand the strengths and weaknesses within each and so that you have developed a toolkit that is diversified. So if you're a classical manager and everything is just telling people what to do and keeping your professional distance, well, that that may not always fly (laughs) with your employees or with certain environments. And of course, different environments may have a more dominant approach to management in general. But the goal is to recognize all of the strengths of these and to, depending upon the situation, use a different style of communication with your people in the workplace. Well, thank you again. And Zach and I definitely have homework to do. So we're on it, going to diversify our shared resources. Yes. (laughs) Love that. Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, Myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. We have just one more listener question. When cultural differences are at the core of communication differences, how can we honor people's culture while supporting more effective communication? Thanks. Bye. That question really goes back to what I said earlier about a receiver-oriented view of communication. And if our intention is to have a shared understanding, then my tendency will be to do things that will seek clarity. Now, if there are clear cultural differences between you and me, and we come from different countries or different backgrounds, there can be more room for misunderstanding very often than someone who's like your best friend who you've been with forever and he or she finishes your sentences for you, right? So 
when you are kind of the outsider, if you will, or you tend to come from different perspectives, that's when we try harder to understand each other. And so that's when we give that meta communication. When you say this, do you mean X? Or am I misunderstanding what that term means? So don't be afraid to just show that interest and ask questions and to be very mindful as a listener in those environments. We don't talk a lot about listening when we talk about communication. We often talk about speaking. But a great listener is a great communicator. And we need to develop that skill set as much as any oral communication. I love that. And I'm grateful for our listeners that they take such an active interest and that they called in with such wonderful questions. Deanna, is there anything that the listeners didn't ask you about that you'd have wanted to share or that I didn't ask you about that you would have wanted to share? I guess I just really reinforce a couple concepts from people that I've admired and had opportunity to get to know. One was my former professor at while I was finishing my doctorate at Purdue, and it was Dr. Charles Redding. And he's really known as essentially the father of organizational communication. It really wasn't a field until kind of the mid-80s. And he made a statement, and the statement is this, a communication failure is at least one of the basic sources underlying every organizational failure. So I really appreciated that he made clear that communication is a critical skill, not only for effective leadership, but for effective organizational functioning. And then I also commented on Stephen Covey, appreciate a lot of what he's taught us over the years. And he said that communication is the foundation of all our relationships, forming the basis of our interactions and feelings about one another. My thoughts on this are that relationships can make us happy or miserable at work or socially. (laughs) But good communication can contribute to good relationships and thus a good life, which is, I think, what we're all striving for. So it's worth the effort to be mindful of our communication practices and to find ways to tweak and continually improve whatever we can with regard to communicating with each other. And for anyone, Deanna, who's listening to this, who might want to communicate with you or read more about your work, is there a way that they can get in touch with you or get in touch with the work that you're doing? Absolutely. I'm a professor at Temple University and my email is available online. (laughs) So if you have an interest, just go to Temple. You'll find my name and find my email. Wonderful. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And Deanna, thank you again for joining me today, joining our listeners. We are so grateful for your time and your expertise. And I'm sure that like me, others learned a lot and emerged with some really tangible takeaways. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It was truly my pleasure to be here. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? Wasn't that great? I really love doing a deep dive with one person who studied an issue in depth. And I appreciate that Deanna is such a wealth of resources and information. And in fact, that after our interview, she sent me a powerful infographic laying out 
five tips for navigating, expressing, and responding to anger in the workplace, which I found really useful. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes, as well as links to two of her published papers, because I learned a lot from them. So speaking of learning, how has either this episode in general, the main episode, or listening to my chat with Deanna changed Azaria and Zach, your understanding of this topic or inspired you to take action? Like, what have you learned? Deanna had mentioned a term that I hadn't heard before, and that is emotional privilege. And I think just in general, I'm someone who always tries to be aware of the different layers of privilege I have depending on where I'm at in life and what room I'm in. But thinking of emotional privilege, and she spoke about managers having emotional privilege that they can be angry. Some even choose to lead through anger for motivation. And understanding that as I grow in my professional life, as I become a leader of a team or an organization, like Ideally for me, as someone who will one day lead a team, I really want to make sure that any emotional privilege I have, my employees feel like they have. Like if it's okay for me to express an emotion, it should be okay for my my employees and my even colleagues around me. So when she mentioned the emotional privilege piece, it really made me stop and think about like, how can I consistently make myself more aware of my emotional privilege, depending on where I'm at and who I'm communicating with? And then when I recognize that privilege, how can I try my best to create a space so that other people have that same privilege around me to really even out the playing field, so to speak? So that really stood out to me. And I think that it's something that our listeners would hopefully take away, which is, again, being aware of the privilege you have when you're communicating, how you're communicating, who you're communicating with, and trying to use that privilege to create a space where people feel safer to also meet you at that level of emotion. That was my takeaway. What really stood out to me and really increased my understanding, because I love it when people give me visuals. I know I'm listening to the podcast, but when she mapped out this dual threshold model, it really put it into perspective. She gave a great example, that space between expression and impropriety and how that differs based on the environment that you're you're in. She gave a good example of the hospitality industry, which I studied in, shout out to School of Sport Tourism and Hospitality Management. She gave a great example of how folks working in that space, she called it the zone of expressive tolerance in between expression and impropriety. That zone for them is so small because it's all about serving the client. There's right and wrong and folks can have their different opinions, but able to actually express that, it's a really small space. And I've actually worked in environments where that space was so wide you could drive a truck through it. Like I've I've been in companies where we would have all out arguments. They didn't turn physical, but they got heated. And that was almost the norm for that particular space. So it was really unique to hear her break that down. And it really put it another layer of thought when I'm looking at different scenarios is understanding what is the leeway to actually express yourself because it's different everywhere you go and, and really at all different work environments, it can, it can change dramatically. I'm curious, Zach, based on what you learned, is there anything that you're hoping that listeners will do differently? One thing, I don't know if, if I would say it's a do differently, but th- first off, she was dropping so many little catchphrases, but she said one thing that was be curious, not furious. I really wish folks would adopt that and really take that to heart because I think a lot of times people don't think about other folks' scenarios at all, really. It's really just thinking about their own time and and what they're doing. And 
so often I keep a very open mind in whoever I'm communicating with that they could be going through a myriad of things personally that have nothing to do with me. It's none of my business, but could be impacting how they communicate. And I don't judge them based on that. I think I might have some curiosity, but I'll take that. I'll say, you know what? They're probably going through a a tough day. I'm not holding it against them or going to think less of them, especially if it's someone that I know that I have a track record with. And I thought that was really important. I I would love for more people to do that, even if you don't have a track record with somebody, is to be curious and not furious. Because I think folks often can get upset quickly because of their assumptions and what they feel the scenario should be or how you should have responded. And that can be the end of a lot of relationships or make it so that all future communication is negative when it really doesn't have to be that way. So I I like that. And I hope folks take that mindset when it comes to communicating, whether it be uh, longstanding relationships or or new ones. One thing that I'm really have gotten curious about since doing the interviews for this episode are different communication styles and how other people communicate the same things, but differently in their own ways. And then also how I can change my communication style, not necessarily to change the content, but to be more effective. And I'm still at the beginning of that. I have to fight through some of my natural instincts to talk over people and to speak quickly and to want to be heard as opposed to want to listen and hear others. And I'd love to know from the two of you, like, how have your styles of communication helped you and how have they hindered you? I think one of, and this actually stems another thing that uh, was said in our Q&A episode, and it was in relation to women expressing anger versus men. Some of the things that she mentioned that women should do or, or might have to do, unfortunately, is try to reduce intensity and identify the emotion. And that whole reducing intensity thing, I do not know how to do that. I want to learn how to do that. I think that will be a benefit to me. But when I have a good idea, it comes out. I blurt it out. I don't take time to really check it, think of it. And I I do it in a way, almost this might be my sales background, but I do it in a way to make sure that you understand what I'm saying and you want to do it just as much as I want to do it versus taking some time to actually think through it a little bit, lessen the intensity. And usually I, I have a feeling if I were to do that more, some of the ideas that I blurt out that aren't good, I probably wouldn't blurt them out as much. And it's that intensity that also makes me feel foolish Because once they're like, well, what about this part? And I don't think it would work because of X, Y, Z. And now I'm like, well, if I just said it, it would have been like, oh, it's just an idea you came up with. But because I delivered it in such an intense way, I feel a little bit worse that I came up with what I thought was a great idea and it really wasn't. So I think that was one thing that uh, I'll try to adapt in my communication style moving forward is lessen the intensity and take my time. And even when uh, she mentioned identifying the emotion, usually I, I understand my emotions and I have them in check. but that was just a a great point. I think sometimes folks might be, I think she said there was a a difference between being angry and aggressive, uh, right? Or aggression. Yeah. Anger. Yeah. yeah, There's a big difference between the two. And I don't, I don't think I've ever really paid attention to the difference between the two, but I understood exactly what she meant. So just paying more attention to the emotion that I'm feeling or that I'm giving. And then also uh, intensity, turn it down notch. That's all I got to (laughs) do. Turn it down. Uh, appreciate the vulnerability there, Zach. For sure. <laughs> Let's see. I think for me, gosh, it feels like I have this internal like warfare going on inside of me at times when communicating with people because I've been in so many instances where 
be it because of my race, my age, my gender. I could be on a Zoom call for an hour plus and no one will stop to ask my opinion. If I don't speak up, I won't be spoken to almost. Like that is, <laughs> that's a reality that I have dealt with for years, especially like as I continue throughout my professional career. And it's almost created this survival response for me where I'm like, if I don't speak up, no one's going to ask for my opinion. So I need to speak up. But now at times I find myself almost interrupt someone to get my point <laughs> across. And so now I feel like I'm trying to find that balance of making sure my voice is heard but also making sure that I don't interrupt people. I think it was Caroline Heffernan who was talking about how she gets complimented on the fact that she is really good at listening. And then like, she just goes into spaces and she has people's attention. Like it's just something about her presence. But I think someone who has that presence is someone who's been able to really hone in on observing and listening and receiving, but also knowing when it's your turn to go in and drop a gem. So I think I want to find that balance where I don't feel nervous that if I don't speak up and speak up now, I'm going to miss my opportunity to be a part of the conversation and also realizing I don't need to be a part of every conversation. So it's a balancing act, but it's hard because you also don't want to be overlooked. So those are things I'm still learning I think you're really touching on, we we always like to touch on privilege and intersectionality and inequity and the way that different people's struggles or successes are, I think, maybe shaped by the identities that they hold, right? And by the privilege that they do and don't have. And I think earlier, Azaria, you were also talking about emotional privilege. And it's one thing to learn how to listen more if you're a person whose voice is always heard. But if you're a person who's not, then maybe listening more isn't the goal, right? And speaking up more is. And I don't know, I don't know that there's any one way to communicate effectively or to show our emotions, but I do think that it is about being authentic to who we are and honoring our own values and ideals. Like I've been in rooms, I love it being in rooms when Zach throws out ideas because in my experience, they're almost always great. But I know that my perception might be different, right, than Zach's perception. And so I, I think one of the things that I find really valuable about communication is to review the game tape, right? Like if we have an interaction that feels negative to us, taking some time and thinking about like, well, why Why did that bother me? Did it bother me because I spoke when maybe I would have been better off listening? Did it bother me because nobody paid attention to what I had to say in the space or because I wanted to say something that I didn't or because of how I communicated or because of the method, because I sent something via text message that would have been really better dealt with on the phone? I don't know, but awareness seems so important to me as part of the process of communicating and emoting more effectively. I would agree. But speaking of creating space for others to share their insights, is there anything else that either of you would have wanted to add before we wrap up? Because I know we could talk about this all day long. No, I don't think there's anything that I can think of. I, th I thought that this was a great episode that, if anything, I'm just hungry for more of this dialogue. So thank you to all of our guests.
Yeah. All right. Great. Well, we would love, and thank you to the guests and also thank you to the listeners who called in with questions. I always love the questions, but it's really great that you all want to join us in the conversations. So if you're listening to this, please write us or call in. And FYI, for those who do write and call, we're going to be giving out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity during every question and answer episode. So this episode, we have a winner to announce. Cesaria, do you want to do the honors? Yes. Congratulations to Daniel Fernie, who is a newsletter subscriber. Thank you so much to everyone who subscribed to the newsletter and calls and writes to us with questions. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We're going to be answering some of your questions there too. And of course, thank you so much for joining us today and for our listeners all around the world. We're being uh, downloaded in more than 50 countries and we greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to reach out to today's expert, Deanna Geddes, please check out our show notes where we will provide her contact information. And while you're checking out the show notes, be sure to click the link for DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and all of our other DEI services. Also, note that we're doing a lot more on social media this season. So connect with us, connect with Sedwick, who is our co-producer and sponsor, and get involved and engaged. Get your employer engaged. Or if you are an employer, hopefully this podcast season will support you in creating a more inclusive workplace culture. And as always, every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, with Azaria Keys, assistant director of Sedwick, who is a co-producer and coordination consultant, Paul Kondo, our assistant producer and editor, Stuart Cranes, development assistant, and our content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. Thank you again to Deanna and to all of our experts and guests for this episode and to you, the listener. And also thanks to Zach and Azaria. This was a really great Q&A episode. Please join us next week where we'll be talking about employee by day, parent by day and night, the consummate balancing act. It'll be a great episode, so tune in for that. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world. 